Hello, this is Steve from Retroband Blog, and welcome to this special episode of Retrosonic Podcast. And I'm actually on location at the fantastic Eelpipe Island Museum in Twickenham. Well, as regular subscribers will know, I do like my music locations and history, and you don't get much more musical heritage than here in Twickenham and nearby Richmond and Ealing, or the Thames Delta, or birthplace of 60s R&B and British beat, as it's otherwise known. So back in the summer of uh, 2013, there was an excellent exhibition in the grounds of Orleans House in Twickenham, looking into this musical heritage of the area, and it was so successful that they had, uh, and they gathered so much um, in the way of artefacts and material, that it was decided to give the exhibition a permanent home. And here we are, right in the heart of Twickenham, a stone's throw, if you pardon the pun, from the Thames, and Eelpite Island itself. And I'm pleased to say I'm joined by museum historian, Pete Watt, and Michelle Whitby, from the museum. And we've got another special guest, Mr. Brett Buddy Ascot of The Fallen Leaves. I've sneaked in. You've sneaked in. <laughs> and um, Buddy's here because The Fallen Leaves recently played at the Downliners Sect tribute to Don Crane, the, um, the fundraiser of the Half Moon, which you can see on the Retroman blog. And we did a podcast just prior to that. And we just heard that you raised about um, just nearly 3,000. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Well, well, well done. Well done to all involved, the charity auction and the downliner sect played, the Masonics and yeah. Fallen Leaves. Um, uh, it was a great, a packed afternoon out. Brilliant afternoon, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. What I remember of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a Sunday afternoon out. But anyway, well done to, to Rob Simmons and Rob Green and all involved with the organisation. And uh, and you were there from the Ill Pie Island, all the staff were there? Yeah, we do, a, we do a regular kind of get-together for our volunteers, take them out, say thank you. We normally just go to the pub. Um, for for an evening out, but we decided that this would be a lovely thing to do, especially as Don Don was Don played a big part in getting the museum going, and he yeah. was always always here. Any, anything, any events we had, he'd always turn up and support us. So yeah, yeah. We, we thought it would be lovely to take all the staff out and. And in fact, he helped open the place physically. Yeah. He actually yeah. oh, snipped right. the ribbon along the Trevor Bayless. I oh. see. Okay, and he was a trustee of the museum. No, we don't have trustees, but he was yeah. like, like a um, patron, I guess yeah. you yeah. call them. Don't you? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, so yeah, Don and Don and Trevor Bayliss actually accompanied me when I was crowdfunding to get the museum off the ground. Hmm. Uh, part of the crowdfunding was to get some money from the mayor of London, and I had to go to City Hall. Yeah. Um, and do like a Dragon's Den style live pitch which was oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it was just Sadiq who had just got, oh, got yeah. in and yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I know there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah um, but yeah Don and uh, Trevor both both accompanied me to that to support yeah. me so yeah Don, Don played a big part in, in everything yeah. that we've done really so so Michelle, you were the curator of the of the music of the exhibition originally. Yes, yeah, yeah. And was it a case that it was so successful that you decided, yeah, we've got to get a museum here? Well, I'd, well, I'd kind of already wanted to set up some kind of museum. Um, I co-authored the book Eel Pie Island, which was published in two thousand and nine. Yes. I had a shop at the time in Church Street, which is just over the road from here, and we did the book launch in there, and I had an exhibition, pictures from the book, etc. And it was then I just thought we need to make more of this. You know, mm. this, this is just such a great subject. We need to do something permanent. Um, then I was asked to curate the show at the Stables Gallery, which was part of a bigger project, which Pete was also part of. Yeah. That was yeah. run by a company called Aurora Metro. There was a film made. There was a book produced as part of that. Um, so on the back of that, I then set up, set up, set up on kind of trying to get a permanent space for the museum. Um, nothing permanent was forthcoming at the time. So in 2015, um, I got use of two rooms in Twickenham Library, which is very rock and roll. Um, yeah. And we set up Pete and myself and uh, and another one of our volunteers, Helen. Um, we set up a, a pop-up museum. It was mm. only five months that we had use of these rooms for, so we did a little pop-up. Um, and then I just kept nagging the council to let me have some space or rent some space somewhere. Um, and we eventually got this space. Yeah. Mm. In fact, the council did actually, when we uh, dismantled that pop-up version, the council allowed us to store it in these premises. 
because oh, that's what yeah. that's all this was being used for the okay. storage. So if you like, that was our little foot in the door. door. Yeah, yeah. With the council, and we kept banging away. We shelved it. We yeah. shelved it all the banging away. Just like, well, we're storing it here. Why don't we? Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So when did the actual museum open to the public? Uh, February 2018. Yeah. Um, it was about six months after we'd planned on opening. There were all mm. sorts of hurdles and yeah. hoops to jump through, like there always are with these sort of projects. But yeah, February mm. 2018, we finally got the doors open. Yeah. Then had to close for nearly a year and a half because of COVID. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we managed to reopen last June. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Don was at that reopening as well. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic museum. I mean, I came just after, shortly after it opened for the first time, and uh, we're going to have a look around a little bit at some of the artefacts. I know it's a audio podcast, so Pete's going to do his best to, to bring it all to life. <laughs> but come on down, obviously, you know. And, and when are you open? What's your opening uh, We open Thursday to Sunday, midday till six. Last entry at half five. Yeah. Uh, three pounds for a single visit or for a fiver you can get an annual membership and come as many times as you like yeah fantastic and you also get discount 15% discount on food at the local eel pie pub if you're a member oh so, yeah. mm-hmm. you might also get a cup of tea or coffee oh yeah yeah, <laughs> we, do, yeah we do make most of our visitors teas and coffees and yeah, yeah. Come we get and our visitors are lovely as well, aren't they? We mm. get, I mean, pretty much most people that do come and visit, they're, they're music fans and they're mm. they're just absolutely gorgeous. We get coach loads of people coming from all over the country, everyone kind of having a little boogie around to the stones in here, and uh, you know, <laughs> and telling us their stories of their misspent youth, and it, yeah, it's just great, mm. yeah. really nice. Fun. Last year, we even had a, a, a coach load of forty ladies from Liverpool. Came. Of course, yeah. Liverpool's got its own little scene, clearly, yeah. uh, which we can't we can't really match in terms of it, its viability, profit-wise. But uh, it was interesting, nevertheless, and the, and the ladies were lovely, and we got a lot of stories about the Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, the Beatles have no connection whatsoever with Eagle Pie Island. We mm. rely more on uh, the London lot, like the Stones and Rod Stewart and, yeah. and stuff like that. Now, I have a question. So if Liverpool was a hotbed of early R&B music and beat music mainly because of sailors bringing records back from the States what was it about Twickenham that did that for London I'll let Pete answer that well I think uh, I think quite often there's a, a, a disparities kind of underlined between Liverpool and London because yes the, uh, the guys coming into Liverpool bringing lots of records but uh, if you think about the, the, the main influence on particularly the Beatles, it was people like Buddy Holly yeah. and a lot of Motown acts, whereas the Stones kind of came out of this sort of, uh, situation where, where they, were, they were discovering Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and very much more the earthier American blues guys. And I can't really readily uh, explain why it should be that London became a hotbed of that. But uh, I think that kind of... Uh, underline the difference between the beat groups and the R&B groups. Right. Uh, they they kind of took similar influences, but they kind of went off in different directions and, and kind of sort of just championed their own particular style. Hmm. Uh, I think Don Crane, on one of his interviews, has said before, or Keith Grant's oppo in the downline of sex, said, oh, no, R&B was much dirtier. The Beatles were too clean, you know, the clean sound... <laughs> Yeah, it did become know. that maybe, yeah. but yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, early on yeah. they were still pretty. But I, I can't really, I can't really explain why London should have gone that way when Liverpool went the other way. And, well, there's a great, there's Andrew Humphrey's great book, Raving yes. Upon Thames, which kind yeah. of is, is exactly about that subject, about specifically what was it about the South East yeah. London mm. scene yeah. in, in, at that time. And Andrew's book is dedicated to three people. One is Arthur Chisnell, who ran the Eel Pie Club, uh, Georgio Gomelsky, that ran the Crawdaddy Club, and Harold mm. Pendleton. That, that ran uh, the Marquee mm. because the Marquee became involved in this part of the world because the original first National Jazz Festival was at Richmond Athletic yeah. Ground where yeah. the Crawdaddy was based yeah. later on yeah. sort of yeah. thing. so, so he, he's dedicated to those three guys because they were kind of promoting the music that was coming through this area mm. Why is it do you think that say Eel Pie, Eel Pie has become this sort of legendary place now 
Mainly because of the venue, wasn't it? The, the, the hotel which hosted yeah, yeah. Um, it was gigs. Special, I think, just the fact yeah. that I mean, the, the first eight or nine months of the club's club's existence, there wasn't even a bridge to the island. You had to go over in this little tiny ferry boat, you know, um, which was an experience in itself. I think particularly getting home was was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> interesting. Um, uh, yeah, it was in this this old rundown hotel um, with a big massive ballroom on the side, which was where the music venue happened. Um, at the time, most of the island was was dominated by boat yards. There was a handful of houses, but not many. The island was overlooking the ham side of the mm. river, which was just fields. You could get away with making so much noise and a great old racket <laughs> over there. You know, there was, I mean, especially before the bridge was built, the police couldn't get over there. You know, it was yeah. just somewhere where the kids could just go and just really let rip. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it was a special venue. For, for the musicians that played there for, for those very same reasons as well and a lot of the guys you know, that were playing would also go there as punters and you mm. know go to see their favourite bands and stuff so yeah I think it was just, it wasn't like your run of the mill pub function room yeah. you know you go and go over to this you know go down this dark path and mm. through the trees and then you suddenly get to this old hotel with this yeah. massive ballroom you know it's just somewhere well, it was, a bit uh, different it was, it was the fading glamour of the whole place yeah. and a lot of people that we interviewed as part of that project back in 2013 uh, would, would state that it was like an, an otherworldly experience because they, the whole point was mm. you're going across the bridge, you're going down the path, you can hear the music in the distance. So it kind of took it away from uh, just coming in off the street, which mm. most of the clubs were. So, mm. the, you know, everybody sort of regarded it in that sort of in, in that sort of vein. Plus it had lots of room, so there was room for lots of... Uh, um, otherworldly adventures as well in the grounds, should we say? Yeah. So, <laughs> it, it, clearly, from that point what of view. Are we talking about? Well, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but the point, the, the thing that I discovered when I was trying to put together information as to who actually played there was <clears throat> that by and large, they, they never advertised. They never advertised. They relied on uh, small flyers that the regular gig goers would get from the club. Or these, or these, they'd be pinned up on on college pin boards or something like that. There was no, there was very little uh, uh, exposure in the musical press or the local press. Yeah. Uh, that happened maybe later on when it was operating under a different guise. But in those early early days, it was kind of word of mouth. People yeah. would just turn up because they knew they'd have a good time. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, they didn't feel the need, I guess, mm. to actually advertise who was on week by week. So people would go there more to, as a, to the venue rather than yeah. who was actually playing. I yeah. guess you yeah. know. And and I think uh, possibly um, what we would get on to is is when Arthur Chisnell started the club, he wasn't actually a a music fanatic or jazz freak or anything like that. Uh, He was, in his terms, a social researcher, and he was trying to come to grips with the concept of a teenager because he he helped in Michael Snapper, the owner of the hotel, had a junk shop in Kingston, uh, and Arthur had noticed all these kids, probably students mainly, uh, coming in looking for trad jazz records. So... He was trying to figure out what's this thing called a teenager? What kind of motivates them? What's the, what's the thrust behind it? Or so he actually, not even being a jazz fan, decided what well, they like jazz, they like dancing. We've already started doing a bit of that on the island. So he he, he kind of official, he officialized it as a club. So in a sense, you could you could argue it's almost a human experiment. He was trying to figure he he, it. If he gets them all in one place, he can understand what they're all getting yeah. up to. Oh, right. Yeah, you know. Well, no, I mean, he was just, he really was like a sort of self-styled social worker. Yeah. His oh, motivation right. yeah. was kind of what, what makes these kids tick, what do they need? Yeah. You know, the, the authorities at the time are going, we just want to brush these horrible, nasty teenagers under the carpet and hope they go away. And Arthur was like, well, I want to talk to them and I want to see what they need. I want to help yeah. them. So I think, I mean, at the beginning especially, you know, he was very actively trying to kind of help people better their lives. Mm. Um, some 20-odd people were sent on to adult college through the Pie Jazz Club, which... Yeah, early 60s was a really big deal. Mm. Um, you know, he, he apparently had classes for, like, you know, how to how to do job applications and, and write a CV. And so sort of actually useful, mm. kind of help, helpful stuff. Um, he was very interested in sort of people that had been pushed off the ladder, as he, he termed it. And, yeah, he would include people like doctors and lawyers in amongst the membership. So kids had kind of informal access if they just wanted to go and have a chat. To someone because back then it was all kind of you know your doctor was your family doctor and your parents would know if you'd gone to say ask about birth control for example so you know he was trying to very you know do very groundbreaking work really for yeah. his time he wasn't really interested in the music just well, okay. all the amazing bands that were <laughs> doing yeah. the rounds and yeah. And they probably needed some advice about birth control as well. Yeah, yeah. well, I don't, I don't think they really took it, didn't they? <laughs> 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 
So, Pete, how, how did he um, go about booking bands? I mean, who, you said he wasn't really into the music. How, who, who was responsible for getting some of these uh, bands in? Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, um, the reason I was able to put together the, 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 the information I've got is because we actually have access, or we have got access to all Arthur's papers. And in amongst them, loads of contracts and flyers that relate to the early years from 56 through till. Uh, tail end of '67 when when they, when uh, things changed, maybe he he had some sort of business acumen that yeah. gave him access to the, the agencies because you you know it's always yeah. you uh, usually about maybe three or four specific agencies that were kind of yeah. He did he did tell you a story once that you know he remembered Brian Jones phoning him up you know saying we we really would love to play the island we will go there to watch bands anyway can 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 you book yeah. us some gigs. Um, and the, yeah, the Stones did what twenty four dates then, nineteen sixty three. But yeah, so yeah, he told me that story. But other than that, I've got no idea. I mean, because no, he wasn't a music. Because he wasn't in music, so no. I guess he, he just <laughs> had a natural. He, he liked Ken Collier, and he, I'd heard him talk fondly about Jeff Beck. But other than that, it was just like it was just some background noise. I think he was just <laughs> wanting to do his social work. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine that it's probably that sort of place where musicians would want to bypass management and agencies because they just want to play there. Mm. Uh, and like you said, Brian Jones said, look, we just want to play there. And I, th- and I suppose you've got to think about the bands at the time. They were, we, we know the Stones had this massive, mm. you know, machine. machine. <laughs> but obviously then they were just a little, a small yeah. band playing local yeah, yeah, yeah. venues and, yeah. and pubs and that. Yeah. So, that's um, that's yeah. exactly true because the story we got, because uh, the guy used to, when you arrived at the club of a night, you'd get your wrist stamped after you, part, after you paid your admission because basically the, the hotel where the music was going on was not actually connected to the pub, it was next door to it. So unless you wanted to drink Newcastle Brown or Newcastle Amber or bottles of cider, you had to go to the hotel bar where you could get gin and tonic or a bottle of wine or a glass of wine or anything like that. So that's why you had to have your wrist stamped to prove you'd paid. Now Stan, the bloke who used to stamp those wrists came and visited us when we had our pop-up back in 2015 and he told us the story that one night Arthur, our, our owner, comes up to Stan and said, where are all our people? And there was a poor band called, not a poor band, but a, an unfortunate band, she say, called the Riverside Jazz Club Band, the Riversiders. They had a, a, a residency and they played there God knows how many times on you know, consecutive Sundays. The place was empty and, and Arthur said, well, where's all our people, Stan? They went off looking and that's when they happened upon the Stones at the Railway Hotel, that's sort of oh, station hotel, yeah. opposite Richmond uh, Station. And they were, of course, they, they were drank, you know, absolute place was absolutely packed. Yeah. And from that point on, we, we obviously he must have grabbed a sort of five-month residency. Yeah. So, as I like to say to people... I did for now. <laughs> you could get legitimately stoned twice a week in the borough. <laughs> on Wednesdays they'd be on the island, on Sundays they'd be at the station hotel, which became the Crawdaddy. Yeah. So tell me, obviously, you know, people that go to Twickenham now and see there's this this little bridge over to the, to the Eelpie Island, you know, 
And it was interesting when you said that there, there wasn't a bridge at the beginning, so I'm just trying to think about bands, how they got, got well, the equipment How many equipment people could be in these boats? Well, it was, yeah. it was only tiny. We've got a picture yeah. of it. I mean, it was like a little, kind of almost like a little punch. You probably got about eight thing. people yeah. maximum. Yeah. yeah. Which is probably yeah. not too bad for going over there, but it'd be the coming back would be the problem. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I mean, it, yeah, those, those, those early, early few months, it was all pretty much trad jazz. So you got yeah. double bass and, yeah. and trombones and, and all that. Yeah. So well, there's a guy, Mike Peters, who took a, a lot of the photographs that we have on display um, who's also a trumpet player and he, he described it as a, like the D-Day landings without the gunfire <laughs> especially trying to get home after you'd had a few yeah but uh, it's, it's interesting uh, a number of uh, times I've heard people who uh, were, were in bands who had a, an organist and if, if he had a hammer oh, yeah. oh, an organ oh, yeah oh. Now that was the beast. Yeah, yeah. The beast that you had to get across that bridge. So an aircraft I, I, I think when Graham Bond was playing there in the 60s, he actually just hired a boat to take it over. He didn't yeah. even try to get it across the bridge. But yeah. Keith Ellison played over there mm. when he was in a band called the VIPs, and we've had contact with one of their guitarists or something. Oh, yeah, when Keith, it was getting his, getting his bloody hammered over that bloody bridge, yeah. you know. Tell us about this, um, this passport. To the island that there was that, we, that people had to have there was like a little it was just like passport. the original membership card yeah. it was um yeah and they just called it passport to eel pie land yeah um, um and yeah it just was it's just like a little tiny folded piece of paper um and so that's that's what we based our membership cards on for the museum as well so. yeah i know it's, it's a good idea because you've got like the little passport here haven't you for so there's some nice text inside it as well. So I'm holding here in my hand a little passport. Um, it says passport. We've got passport to Il Pyland, and um, it's got we request and require in the name of His Excellency Prince Pan, all those whom it may concern, to give the bearer of this passport, so and so, so and so, any assistance he may require in his her lawful business of jiving or regularly cutting a rug. <laughs> <laughs> Given under our hand this tenth day of February nineteen sixty. So, and this was like the. So did everyone have to have one of these before yeah, they could go yeah, in? Into them, the, yeah, yeah. It was a membership card. That's wonderful. So yeah, we've got a few kind of original ones that people have donated. Yeah. Um, I think I think the, the club kind of ran to about twenty thousand members yeah. eventually. Oh wow! It's always been one yeah. thing I'd want to know: what's the highest number membership? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, it's certainly over twenty thousand. And you mentioned now if you want if people want to come along and have a, a yearly membership, you, you get like a little passport which it's I've still a got. Yeah, we kind of model it on that. Great, yeah, yeah. so it's yeah. a nice little touch yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's worth it just to get the little passport. So and you well, so we do. We, I mean, membership. we get we get overseas visitors yeah. that all clearly are not going to come back again in you know in a year because they're here on holiday, but they they want one just for it's like a little souvenir. Right, we're now doing a little walk around the museum in the company of Pete Watt. So looking at some of the exhibition here, obviously please do come down and have a look because um, it's all very, very visual, as you can imagine, but uh, Pete's going to talk us through some of the few choice artefacts. Um, so Pete, this is now at the very beginning yeah. of Eel um, Pie Island. Uh, we've got this uh, collage of uh, photos that was put together for us by a fellow called Brian Rutland. Uh, at the time, in 1956, he was a, a trumpet player, had his own band called the Grove Jazz Band. Now, he was playing down on the river at the Barmy Arms in a very small function room, and uh, he basically needed a bigger place to play. 
He approached Michael Snapper, the owner of the hotel, who, despite his grandiose ideas when he first bought the hotel for Peanuts in 1951, didn't really get anything established or off the ground. Things like a casino, a roller rink, or a skittle alley, or anything like that. Nothing happened. Brian, uh, Brian Rutland approached him and said, literally, oh, Mr Snapper, you have got ballroom literally gathering dust. Why not I bring my jazz and all my friends and my acolytes over mm. to you? Mm. And, of course... Snapper says, well, I've got a pub, Kerching, bring it on. So that's mm. kind of what kicked off the relationship between the hotel, its ballroom, and music. Mm. Now, effectively, what Brian was doing was uh, playing for little kind of private parties. He was probably getting paid in terms of crates of beer rather mm. than money. Um, Snapper being happy just to sort of get the extra custom for the pub, basically. Um, a few months later, we mentioned Arthur Chisnell, and Chisnell, as I said before, worked in, for Snapper in his junk shop, and he mm. suddenly had this revelation, he wanted to understand what the kids were up to, mm. and so he took over the booking of bands, yeah. and poor old Brian turns up one day, expecting to play, to be only to be told, sorry Brian, I've taken, by Arthur Chisnell, sorry Brian, I've taken over the booking of the bands, and we've got Ken Collier tonight. Yeah, but don't yeah. worry about Brian. He's a millionaire several times over. He's got yachts in the Bahamas and Wales. <laughs> so whatever his day job was, it, was, it he didn't make it for music. I guess. So he was gazumped <laughs> in this case, but but uh, yeah. uh, he didn't suffer undue as a result of that. Yeah. But when Arthur Chisnell took it over, he basically officially created an official club, and mm. with that, you had memberships and entrance fees. So you had yeah. cash money coming in. So yeah. the likes of Ken Collier would yeah. be getting paid cash money instead of crates of beer. Yeah. So it says here that um, Brian Rutland's Grove Jazz Band were the first band to play at the island, April 1956. So you're going way back, mm-hmm. aren't you? No, it's uh, it's uh, some heritage, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I see George Melly is there. There's a passage in his book, Only Up, where he talks about being enticed to Eelpie Island because it, had, it reeked of honky-tonk or, or gut bucket in sort of American terminology, mm. blues-type stuff. So that's what attracted him. Yeah. He turns up one night when Cy Laurie was playing and he basically blagged his way onto stage and effectively that kicked off his yeah. singing career. Well, whatever you think of his singing career, I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. where it's, it actually started yeah. in 1956. On, 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 I've got no date for that particular night, but we yeah. do know it happened because he wrote about yeah. it. Yeah. And now you've got um, Ken Collier, Aka Bilk, yeah. Chris Barber... More of what we would say, probably trad jazz. Yes, exactly. Stuff. Trad jazz. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Everything, everything at that point was trad jazz. Mm. Um, as, as I said earlier, Chisnell had noticed kids coming into the junk shop looking for trad jazz records. Mm. So that, if you like, was the, was the, the kind of thrust of, of, of the kids' music mm. in, in pre Yeah, and, and Skiffle came along with that because, uh, you know, we've got, a, we've got a picture of Lonnie Donegan up there. He never played on the island because by the time the club opened, he was massive anyway. He was yeah. out in the States. Yeah. And it was Skiffle that had kind of given him the nudge up. But what a lot of the jazz bands used to do in those days, they'd play a set and then they'd break and then come back half an hour later and do another set. But mm. in that half-hour break, some of the guys would kind of form what they call a breakdown band, and that's when mm. they'd be performing skiffle numbers. Yeah. And, and even people like Ken Collier, who's this very strict trad jazz, mm. New Orleans jazz man, he was into skiffle, so he'd pick mm. up a guitar and start playing skiffle in, in between yeah. the sets. And so, so skiffle kind of went along hand-in-hand. Hand. There were only one or two skiffle acts that were booked specifically as skiffle, I think quite a lot of the time it was people just coming up on stage and doing a bit of skiffle in between mm. the two jazz sets and things mm. like that. So very little documentation of who yeah. played in that yeah. in the skiffle sense, except there's one or two specific skiffle bands. So I suppose skiffle was almost like the sort of punk of the time. Yeah, right? anyone, right so you've got like the lo-fi. virtuosity of, say, jazz, yeah. and, that, and then yeah. you've got skiffle where people are just banging on things, homemade... I mean, here you've got like T chest bass, a washboard. (laughs) You've got here a wonderful example of a cigar cigar box box guitar. guitar, You know, I mean, it's like C6 Steve is sort of um, playing now, isn't it? Those sort of things. And it's um, so you've got all this virtuosity of Vaca Bilk and all Mm. these trad jazz down to this basic rock rock and roll of um, of, of skiffle, you know, which um, strips it all back, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And you've got some fantastic photos here on display at the museum of sort of all this of like a bilk of, of the crowd in, in the ballroom of the of the sort of wonderful sort of murals that have been painted on the walls there and the, and the famous sort of backdrop of, on the stage which you've actually yeah, recreated yeah. in the yes, museum. that's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so wonderful that's photos. Kind of, that's kind of giving it a time, a time period. But it's mm. interesting to note the, the uh, comparison to those shots 
and a shop we have here, which is the ballroom in the 30s, where it's a much more formal kind of operation. It's amazing to see this. There's a beautiful photo of it here in all its glory. Like I said, it's a beautiful sort of Art Deco-style ballroom. Very smart, very posh, yeah, you know. And, yeah, and yet, when right. it's complete, so obviously, it must the hotel must have fallen into some disrepair, really. But yeah. by, by the time it came to a, a, a jazz or rock music venue, yeah, that's right. Um, and you got some great photos of the hotel. And unfortunately, obviously, now it's it's long since gone. There's sort of luxury flats on the on the location now of of the hotel, which is a, a big shame because it does look quite a beautiful building. You know, it's um, got a lovely um, balcony. It's quite a striking building in itself, isn't it? Quite a, lot of, a lot of these photos actually show lots of people because it yes. was a bit of a mecca for pleasure boats coming from the centre of London because, let's yeah. face it, Twickenham or Eel Pie represented the country, as it were, so it was yes. a nice day out, if you like. And now we're moving on past a, uh, a record player and you've got a selection of vinyl that I guess people can pick and choose from. Absolutely, absolutely. You've got um, yeah. some, obviously, Stones, Rodsteel people that are associated with Long John Baldwin. Fortunately, uh, we've got a very good record shop in Twickenham down Church Street called yes. Yes. Pie Records. Yes. And what they kind of sponsor of, they organise every four weeks, there's a record fair yes. in the church at the bottom end of Church Street. Yeah. So yeah. I'm almost obligated, obliged. I have to go and see if I, I can find something that relates to the island. Yeah. And quite often I do. Quite often I'll find something like an old blues record or, yeah. or you know, Manfred Mann. Or somebody, basically somebody that, that's got a connection with, yeah. with the island's history. Um, and then we kind of extrapolate it. So we've got some later period Jeff mm. Beck. Of course, Jeff Beck only played there with the Tridents in 1964. Mm. But hey, we'll, yep. we'll, still, we'll still extrapolate because he has got a connection. Yep. We'll even have the Small Faces. I've never got a Small Faces date. But Ian McLaggan played there a number yeah. of times with his band The Meal Skinners. Yeah. So a lot of, yeah, I mean, this is, oh, just to quickly mention the Pie Records, of course, we've mentioned it on the blog before, they're responsible for the Record Fair and also the High Tide Festival yes, in Twickenham, absolutely. it's a great record shop, yeah. I was in there just before I came in, uh, so again, another good reason to visit Twickenham, yeah, you know, yeah. it's a great record shop, um, well worth uh, popping into. And you've also got a video display of a documentary, and as we're looking at Don Crane now and the and the Downliner oh, sect with his yeah. famous um, Deerstalker hat, which, of course, Billy Childish famously uh, appropriated and um, worked with Don with the head coach sect, um, which is, which if, if you listen to Retrosonic Podcast, the last episode, we actually have an exclusive new um, the head coach sect track. So um, check it out. I'll put a link to the blog and uh, you'll have an advanced listen of a, of a new release that's coming up. Um, yeah, sad about Don Crane, um, as I said, and uh, so you can see all the history of, of here. You've got a great uh, little documentary showing there. The documentary um, itself is called Clinging to a Mud Flat because Trevor Bayliss, the inventor, yes. was asked once to describe Eel Pie, and he said, oh, it's just like 200 drunks clinging to a mud flat. <laughs> so that's, that's the title of the, of the full DVD that we've got on display here. But I have yeah. seen an edit which just deals with the musical aspects yeah. uh, on London Live, I think, yeah. uh, cable tv network thing uh and i think it's called sex and drugs and eels and pies there you go. but that's just like a 25 minute edit of the, the whole thing yeah great and then you've got a lovely shop here with um, lots of lovely merchandise all really nice designs and, and um your t-shirts books uh, mugs tea towels um everything you can wish for 
really nice. Um, I was going to say, who does who designed the um, the sort of car- caricatures on on the? I want to. A friend of ours lives on the island, Sheba Cassini. Her and her husband Simon, they're both cartoonists, they're both caricaturists. Mm. Uh, but she's specifically done a number of designs for us, Sheba. Mm. And she lives in a house called Love Shack. Oh, lovely. Oh, that's yeah, really, yes. That's a uh, really great design, let's yeah. yeah. So, did Bowie play here? Yes. Wow. Oh, David Bowie played Yes, yeah, 64, when he was with the Manish Boys. Yeah. Fantastic. So, but, here, all on this little island, you think about some of the, the legendary figures that have actually yeah. uh, played there, you know, and uh, you've got these. Wonderful tea towels, postcards, really worth having a look. Again, maybe we can ask if we can put a copy of uh, one of Sheba's designs on the blog for people to have a look at. And yeah. um, really great. You've got, Lon- you know, you've got Lonnie Donegan, you've got uh, David Bowie, Pete Townsend, of course, John Lee Hooker. John Lee Hooker. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So yeah. did the, the high numbers played here or the Who? Well, I've never seen... Well, the Who played there just the once in October 68. Uh, I did have a... Somebody got... Yes. Somebody, somebody got in touch with us and reckoned that they saw the detours or had a ticket for the detours playing on the island. But I've never, and I did ask them, please send us a copy of it. Said, Just photo it, scan it, send it to us. And they never got back to us. Could have been another. I do know that they did play uh, a gig at the what was the Bird's Nest at the top of the lane that leads down to. Hmm. Then there was a pub called the Bird's Nest. Uh, that was usually inhabited by skinheads later on in the sixties. But they apparently the detours actually did a, an audition there. Mm. I don't know. What so when the Who's played here in '68, was that a special occasion or a secret well, gig or it, something? Well, it sort it, it kind of it, the, the whole story's blossoming uh, you know, as we speak. Of course, because uh, what happened was uh, when Arthur Chisnell was running the club, and and he walked away from the club in 1967 because the license was revoked. So, however successful the club had been, no money had been put into the upkeep of the hall. So there were holes in the ceiling, holes in the ballroom floor, and everything else. The license was revoked. Uh, Chisholm was fined about £10 or £15 at local magistrate's court for letting stuff go on. Uh, and suddenly, as a f- uh, and the club closes. So then there's a big p- fallow period and nothing happens until about Ju- June or July 68. And suddenly the hall is open for some sporadic gigs. There's not, not clubs so much. It's just a venue. The hall's been used as a venue. And funnily enough, about a matter of weeks ago, two ladies came in here and they remember being little girls living in the hotel in 1968. Now, when we talked to them, their father was, uh, he'd been employed by Michael Snapper, the owner of the mm-hmm. hotel, as like a uh, caretaker of the hotel. And he happens to be a, um, uh, a carpenter. So was his brother. They apparently were working on ref- refurbishing the ballroom, mm. the actual the floor. floor. Yeah. And so that's presumably why, with a li- bit of liquor paint, they mm. were able to get the licence back to be able to put gigs on again. Yeah. And so suddenly in 1968, you've got the likes of the nice, crazy world of Arthur Brown, Joe Cocker, mm. supported by Terry Reid, which would have been an interesting mm. night, mm. and finally The Who. And apparently it was, mm. the, it was the guy who was employed as, as the, uh, the caretaker yeah. who actually booked The Who. Because oh. Chisnell had never booked that. He was scared stiff of the idea of The Who, with their mod following, being put <laughs> yeah. on at the island. And the place just being smashed hold- up again. <laughs> well, just being invaded by hordes yeah. and mods on, on their scooters come yeah. tearing across the bridge. So he never booked them. Yeah. So finally, 1968, clearly the mod days are kind of behind them in that stage. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so they do play a gig, and they're and, uh, interesting, uh, interestingly supported by East of Eden, mm. which is significant in its own right. Uh, but uh, I do know somebody who reckons work. He says he was at that gig, and he remembers Pete Townsend coming to the microphone and saying, like, don't you guys to laugh, but the next few numbers we're doing are from what I'm calling a rock opera. I was going to say, a year later they're playing Woodstock. Exactly. <laughs> a year later, Tommy, uh, yeah. Tommy hadn't even come out that time, so what I'm yeah. saying, I'm suggesting is Eel Pie got a sneak preview of Tommy yeah, wow. in October 68. And Fantastic. the bit about East of Eden yeah. is their, their featured instrumentalist was Dave Arbus on violin. Yeah. And of course he crops up on Who's Next? Barbara on Barbara O'Reilly. And I just oh, wonder, yeah. is that, is that where, where they met? Yeah. Oh, Fantastic.
Yeah, it's a shame there's no footage of it, isn't it? Because that yeah. would have been something to see them there at that period, because they were yeah, warming up for Woodstock. Well, exactly. They, they're making that transition from pop to yeah. rock. So into the of sort of fringe really. jacket, long hair, getting out of the mod into the <laughs> psych and opera, rock yeah. opera stuff. But uh, And of course, Pete Townsend is... Um, we can't talk about Twickenham without mentioning Pete Townsend because he had Eel Pie Studios yep. and he had his named his publishing company after it. And, um, and a lot of people have asked about Eel Pie Studios, for instance. Mm. I mean, that was nowhere near Eel Pie. Mm. He just sort of co-opted the name, both for his mm. publishing, his record label, and mm. as you say, the, the studio. Yeah. That's further further downstream. Just down it's the river on the Richmond. Yeah, yeah, it's a lovely area as well. It's worth, yeah. worth having a look at there because there's a beautiful... Weir and Lock there, yeah. and a, a fantastic bridge across yeah. the river there. But um, mm. I've seen some footage, some shots of, of the yeah. studio because I, I used to live around that, around the corner from there. Yeah. Uh, I think he only finally sold it in about two thousand and six or seven or something like that. I know mm. Ian Brody and the Lightning Seeds were doing a lot of work, and the, yeah. and the Cocktail Twins did a lot of stuff there. But yes. I think I believe Townsend finally sold it off in about 2006. It's, or eight. it's easy to remember the day because it was the day that England won the Rugby World Cup with Wilkinson's last minute oh kick. really is it oh. so Twickenham was quite a good place to be in that yeah. day <laughs> so now we're moving on to the main part of the, the, the museum and you've got a wonderful recreation of the famous uh, mural that was at the back of the stage of Eel Pie with a great looking bunch of musicians moving away and you've got um, a section of musical instruments here you've got oh, a nice poster of the Don Crane tribute show with um, the Fallen Leaves there mentioned there buddy for you and uh, you mentioned you were talking, describing earlier on about uh, the uh, tea towels and, and, yes. and sheep as wonderful caricatures. Mm. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, two ladies came in, they're big Rod Stewart fans, and they run a, a website called Smiler, after one of his albums, yeah. clearly. And they bought a couple of the tea towels, and they sent one back. And Rod has signed it. But oh. he's also po- helpfully pointed out which one's him. <laughs> as if you can't tell. Well, maybe, yeah, you <laughs> yeah. need the help. Fantastic. And you've got a signed football by Rod Stewart. You've got um, some wonderful memorabilia here. You've got Don Crane's Deer Stalker. You've got some um, Manish Boys, Davy Jones in the lower third. Don't worry about all that. You've got a pair of Charlie Watts drumsticks. Oh, have indeed. Signed oh, by him. Which is that. a bit of an art form in that itself. Is, you better make sure he hasn't um, run off with those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Check him, frisk him on the way out. <laughs> the, one Watts. of the interesting little curios we've got in this particular place point is... Uh, all right, got a little section dedicated to Don Crane. We've got his dear stalker. That's his diary from 1964, and we just opened it arbitrarily on the day when he was playing on the island. Yeah. The Wednesday, weight of pie island, £30. Oh. Quite a tidy sum in those days, I would imagine. But if you look below us, here we've got two photographs of Don, mm. Don Crane and the downliners appearing on Ready, Steady, Go. Yeah. So that means that somebody was sitting in front of the TV when they're watching Ready, Steady, Go, taking photographs. <laughs> and if yeah. you look at the Friday entry in yeah. that diary, it's ready, steady, go. Wow. Oh, so amazing. these photos were taken on that date. Wow. And that's, that's totally by accident. That's wonderful. <laughs> I call it happenstance. <laughs> Question, Pete. Um, because I'm more of a Who aficionado than the Rolling Stones, and um, but I am aware that Mick and Keith met at Dartford railway station yeah. uh, because one was carrying a certain record under his arm or something. So, how did they relocate to Southwest London? Because Dartford is a long way from here. It is, but I think uh, you'd have to go back to 
seeing the origins of the R&B boom, the likes of Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis, they kicked off after they played in Soho for, for a little while. They needed a big, bigger place. And then they moved out and they found a place in Ealing, and that's where the Ealing Jazz Club guy yeah. kicked off. Yeah, so yeah. the Stones themselves, I think, you know, according to Bill Wyman's mm. uh, autobiography, uh, they played their first date on the 12th of uh, March 62 at the Ealing Club. So the Ealing Club at that point was the centre of R&B. And, you know, there wasn't anywhere else in town that was playing that kind of music. So right. that's why, you know, Brian Jones is coming all the way from Cheltenham. You know, yeah, yeah. he's coming to Cheltenham right. yeah. to come and see the bands that were playing there or the, yeah. or the musicians that were playing there. And equally, our, our two friends, Mick and Keith, are yeah. making the same trip from Dartford because there's nowhere else to go and see this music right, yes, happening. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when people like, obviously, Alexis Corner was very benevolent. He would quite often invite guys up on stage to play with mm, his Blues mm. Incorporated outfit. And that's yeah. where you're getting the situations where Mick Jagger's getting up and um, singing alongside yeah. Alexis Corner and stuff. And then uh, it, it kind of went on from there because Alexis Corner, if I remember rightly, he got a... Um, a slot on the BBC on a Thursday, which meant that, that he has to, had to vacate his slot in the marquee. And by, the, by that time, the Stones had kind of got themselves together, so they kind of took over that, that mm-hmm. slot, and, which kind of gave them the opportunity to to play regularly. And yeah. so it's a little bit... I think um, Eel Piano was a little bit later in the game because it clearly it was a year later. Um, it had all been tried jazz ever since the beginning in 1956 mm. uh, until we suddenly see a, a rock and twist night um, appetise where it's Screaming Lord Such and Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers yeah. and this mm. is October 62 so that's the first time I can find any evidence of non-jazz happening on the island and yeah. I guess that's if from that point onwards the Wednesday night became the norm for R&B bands and that's yeah. when the Stones come and come into play basically yeah yeah and you've got some wonderful photos here of Stones playing at Eel Pie Island Hotel. You can see the backdrop behind Mick Jagger there, which yeah. you can see behind us. And you've got um, yeah, some great um, signed uh, picture there. Well, that, there's a letter there uh, just verifying payment to the Stones. Not yeah. for all of their gigs, because they did 24 in, in total. But mm. the first one that's mentioned there, £45. Oh, there fantastic. Yeah, you've Barking. got all the... Uh, <laughs> this is their... Um, Residency, I guess, isn't it? Well, effectively, yeah. 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 There was one night when it wasn't part of the residency, and what happened there was uh, <clears throat> Ian McLagan, later of the Small Faces and Faces, mm. he was the entertainment secretary at the local college at Twickenham, Twickenham College of Graphic Art or whatever. Mm. He was the entertainment secretary, and he saw the Stones loads of times, and he was impressed. He wanted to get them on the bill for the, basically the college dance. Mm. So he helped, he helped them get their gear back across the bridge one night, and he was hassling Mick Jagger. Jagger finally gives him their manager's number. McLagan organises them for a gig on a Friday, because the first time I ever saw that date I thought that's a Friday the club never operated on a Friday mm-hmm. well true it wasn't a club date it was actually the college had hired the hall to yeah. do the gig and what with McLagan having organised it he of course bagged himself a support slot with the mule skinners yeah and the poster that I found that we have found for it was actually designed by a fellow called Barney Bubbles oh. aka oh, Colin yes. Fulcher yeah, because yeah. he was at Twickenham College mate of Ian McLagan's I see so that, that apparently is, is, is Barney Bubbles' first bit of professional artwork oh, and he went on to do that a number the of others the old yes yeah. yeah and the whole wind log and all that sort of yeah, thing so yeah, yeah, very yeah. Uh, very specific sort of uh, career afterwards in fact that ticket that you see there that's again Barney Bubbles yeah. and what that's talking about it's advertised Rod Stewart and Brian and the Brian Auger Trinity Oh wow! But yeah. it's actually Steam Packet, which includes yeah. uh, Long John Baldry. Yeah. But the, the, the quote there is to force the grey out and force the white in at the Eel Pie Steam Laundry. Now I don't know. Does, well, did that pre, was that predicting the Steam Packet number uh, uh, name, or or did it go the other way around? I don't know.
Hayley got in touch with us and said, got in touch with Michelle, said, well, I've got some photos of Rod Stewart at the, at the hotel. Are you interested? Well, after she'd bitten the hand off, yeah, yeah we got the photos, yeah. we have blown them up. And that's just Rod on a night out. He's yeah. not there because he's performing. He's just yeah. there with a bunch Rod of mugs. Yeah, yeah, this is a Rod in all his mugs. Yeah, look at that. There's there, you know. This is great, you know. And then you're coming over here into the Stones. And I mentioned here about the Stones in South West London. Yeah. Uh, you've got some great uh, displays here. But when they stuff. announced they were playing at the stadium back in 2018 and, oh, yes. and gave us the date, it was 19th of June, I looked in the records, 19th of June, 63, they were playing on the island. So that's when we commissioned, oh. again... Uh, Sheba over on the island to come up with a design for a tea towel which oh, depicts the Stones in 63 playing at the, uh, uh, the hotel mm. and in 2018 playing at the stadium yeah. and the day that they did actually play uh, we had over 200 people come through here yeah. from mm. all, all over the world literally yeah. I um, think that, and, this, and this particular part of the museum is a, <laughs> a temporary exhibition yeah. based yeah. on the Stones but we like it so much we've never taken it yeah, down yeah, since and I remember I think when, when the Stones were playing at Twickenham, pretty things were playing at the Cabbage Patch just up the road. I think I got they a feeling they might have. They, I saw them around that, that time yeah. on one of their last sort of electric shows. Sure. And I, I thought about the pretty things. It, what, what a shame because, you know, there, there's the Stones playing yeah, at, at Twickenham kind of, at the yes. stadium, and then you've got the, yeah. the, the pretty things playing in front of like 200 people, which yeah. was. A, I'd rather be at the Stadium. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, well, the interesting thing about the pretty things is we've got uh, reproductions of posters in a section over there, which yeah. includes the pretty things. Yeah. Now, I tried to interview Phil May back in 2013 as part of that whole musical heritage project we've mentioned before, because uh, they were playing at the Cabbage Patch that night. Phil May yeah. and Dick Taylor were there. Yeah. And I sort of said, Are you, are you okay to be filmed or interviewed about yeah. Il Payard? And Phil said, Never played there. Yeah. Dick Taylor said, well, I played there once, I can't remember anything about it. So I think, well, hang on, we've got posters that sort of say yeah. you're playing, but then, of course posters aren't guarantees of anything, really. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've had two different people get in touch with us. Uh, a lady got in touch with our web, uh, with our Facebook page to say she remembered going to see the pretty things. It was freezing cold, it was February 69, and they never showed up. Yeah. The reason was the bridge was frozen over, they could not get their oh, gear no. across. I see across the bridge yeah. there's a bit of fellas written in our guest book about coming to see the pretty things they never showed up oh, and he didn't get his 12 and 6 back <laughs> so despite the fact that's interesting because I I've thought they would have played well, there yeah, yes, yeah, but yeah. they were down to yeah yeah. Uh, and I've got them up there yeah uh, from 1969 but uh, you know people that were there said no they didn't show up yeah they couldn't get their stuff across the bridge. Yeah. Well, now we're standing in front of... This is a really impressive thing to see at the museum. You've got, it's, a, it's a wall which is just a massive timeline, really, from 1956, August, Ken Collier's yeah. Jasmine, the very first entry, right up until 1970. Quintessence. Quintessence, the last show at the yeah. Alpine Island Hotel. And this is now... You've, this is a labour of love, isn't it? How, how did you get it is together absolutely, all these and, dates? Um, well, back in 2013, as part of that project, again, um, I, I and the project manager, we went round to Arthur Chisnell's old house where he used to live. Arthur died in 2006. Um, fortunately, an old friend of mine from the 80s, she was his, care, his lodger and she became his carer around about 2006, at which point he died. And uh, as a result, she kind of inherited his place in mm. Strawberry Hill. But she fortunately for us kept all his paperwork. Yeah. And amongst all these papers, not just to do with the, the, the club, he had lots of other uh, irons, uh, irons in the fire, such as yeah. uh, children's adventure playgrounds, sorts of information mm. sharing sort of aspirations and things. But amongst the musical things, thing, uh, papers were lots of contracts and flyers. Yeah. So basically from that, I was able to construct as best I could, mm. you know, who actually played, certainly during his tenure as, as the, uh, as the uh, club owner sort of thing. I mean, here it's amazing. You know, you've got the downliners sec there, 64, yeah. residency. You've got um, oh, Bill Wyman, Ian Stewart, Jeff Beck, with Jimmy Page sat in a jam session, the Manish Boys, David Bowie, yeah. Alex Harvey, Soul Band, yeah. John Baldry. This is fantastic. You know, look at this. Artwoods. I mean, I'm just looking at what's Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. That would have been great, wouldn't yeah. it, at that time? That was in 1963. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so correct. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Every evening, put on my dish work suit, I call my baby, 
And let's go watch her with you. I met some movies, but she don't seem to be that. And then she asked me, why don't I come to her flat and have some supper? And let the evening pass by. I'm taking records. This sounds a groovy high five. I say, yeah, yeah. And that's what I say. I say, yeah, yeah. My baby loves me. She gets me feeling so fine. But she loves me. She makes me know that she's mine. And when she kisses, I feel the fire get hot. She never misses. She gives it all that she's got. And when she asks me if everything is okay, I got my answer. The only thing I can say, I say yeah yeah. That's what I say. I say yeah yeah. We'll play a melody and turn the lights down low, so the night can see. We gotta do that. We gotta do that. We gotta do that. We gotta do that. Alive in all the world except you and me Yeah, 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 yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah Pretty baby, I never need you to thrill It's hard to tell you Because I'm trembling still But pretty baby, I want you off of my own I'm ready to leave those others alone No need to ask me if everything is okay I got my answer The only thing I can say I say yeah, yeah That's what I say I say yeah, yeah That's what I say Who's who of great 60s beat and R&B um, artists and acts, isn't it? You know, it's wonderful. Show. Yeah. Wow. He was initially brought over and marketed as a soul singer. Mm. I found some YouTube footage of him in Paris, uh, which I've incorporated as a link on the online version of this. Uh, and he was just doing soul, basically singing soul music. Mm. So it's a few years away from his reggae superstar. Yeah. Like well, I mean, we mentioned this earlier when, when we were talking about this before we started recording, that... Obviously, this sort of is quite an affluent area around Twickenham, Richmond and that. So you had all these sort of, you know, reasonably well-off white kids playing black music. Even skiffle, R&B, jazz. Yes. But you were saying that, yes, you, well, obviously, you know, we had like, um, you know, Jimmy Cliff. Yeah. Um, There's a very rich scene of, of the original venerable black uh, uh, blues guys. A lady brought her uh, diary in a couple of years back uh, and it had a Howlin' Wolf entry. Mm. So mm. you got Howlin' Wolf. Uh, John Lee Hooker, Memphis Slim, Champion Jack Dupree, uh, Little Walter. But along with the blues guys, you've also got the soul slash R&B review style, style mm. artists like Gina Washington is the best exponent I can yes. think of. But Gina Washington, so generally, and Herbie Goins in the night time as Ronnie, Jay and the, Ronnie Jones and the Blue Jays, they're basic, by and large, usually black American soul singers, mm. here courtesy of Uncle Sam, because they've mm. been over here serving mm. for the Air Force, for instance, I see. and realise that they, get, they can actually they can earn a crust here, which they mm. possibly couldn't back in mm. the States. And so it's you, quite often you have these soul and review acts. And that kind of goes through the, the, the 65, 66 period as well. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's a lot of black influence there, but it's more to yeah. the soul and R&B. Well, Gina Washington... And he's still, still doing it. And he's still, still doing it. I saw him in Twickenham yeah. a few years ago yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at the Cabbage Patch. That's yes. right. Yeah. That was a night. Yeah.
the Mark IV, that's... Ah, they became... They ended up... The creation. Yeah. Yeah, John oh, Dalton was the bassist. He left to join the Kinks. That's they, right. That's they all John Dalton. themselves the as, as a creation with Eddie Phillips. Yeah. All this. yeah, this is amazing. I think uh, the interesting thing is, though, a lot of the... Whereas a lot, a lot of these names became something, they weren't at the time they played on the island. Yeah, sure. In, in that yeah. sense, certainly amongst the UK bands. But in a way, that's, that's the, the beauty yeah. of it as well, oh, isn't yeah, it? Because you're, like I said, you're Manish cra- Boys, David Bowie... That's exciting about seeing a list of groups that have played Wembley Stadium. Yeah. No, no, of course not. Because no, you've not. heard of every no. single one no. of them. No, no. But, you see, the Stones, when they played their last gig, they announced to the crowd, right, we're on tour next week. They're going off on mm. tour with the Everly Brothers and Bo Diddley. Mm. Uh, on tour next week, if it doesn't work out, we'll see you back here. Of course, they never <laughs> came back. In 55 yeah, They years. never came back, yeah. you know. To boil it down, what happened at the end of 67 was the licence was revoked. I mentioned this before, you know, there's yeah. a bit of refurb, a bit of a lick of paint, and yeah. suddenly things re- uh, uh, start again, start fresh. Uh, come the end of 69, autumn uh, 69, I suppose, a fella called Caldwell Smythe comes along. Now, he used to be in a band called the Riot Squad, who also boasted uh, Mr. Bowie playing amongst their ranks, but not at the same time as he was playing. Mm. Anyway, he approaches Snapper and says, right, I want to kick off another club. Every Friday, Saturday, whatever. And Snapper gives him, mm. yeah, OK, go, go ahead. With it. This time, of course, the hotel it doesn't, it, you know, it's, it's not being used for anything. Mm. Um, and in fact, a commune got itself established in there. Mm. So anyway, Caldwell Smythe establishes a new club called Colonel Barefoot's Rock Garden. Now, comp- now, jazz is absolutely history. Jazz, jazz is, you know, it's gone mm. forever, as it were. And what, what he was bringing was the likes of Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Free, yeah. Yeah. Taste, uh, Motba Cooper, and stuff like that. Yes. So it was the heavy yeah. hitters of the, sure. the, the, you know, basically the white rock yeah. Yeah. bands. So it's changed know, the complexion of it. It's changed, changed yeah, the, whole, yeah, yeah. The, the, the makeup of the Well, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's where you could... St- Spend hours looking at all that. You know, oh, it's a great, wonderful bit of work there. And as I check the website, um, which we'll yeah. put all the links up on the retromanblog.com feature. And then we'll just move around to the final sort of section of the museum. Um, we were talking about the black artists, and you've got a completely good, uh, nice section here on the blues and soul, paying tribute to some of the black artists that inspired all these great R&B bands in the first That's place, which is fair. which is nice. I think it gets overlooked, really, doesn't it? Where it certainly does. And, and in fact, I'm working with somebody. Uh, who's uh, working on the Black History Month, which is coming up in October. Uh, she's from the council in Wandsworth, and I'm trying to put together some words that we can uh, put into a handout or uh, some sort of uh, some sort of giveaway, both at the museum and maybe in public places, which actually does uh, mm. describe, A, the fact that the club was based on black American music, mm. i.e. the... Uh, New Orleans jazz and skiffle, and yeah. because we recycled the R and B that all our youngsters were getting into, like the Stones and the Yardbirds, sure, recycled it. Plus, we did actually feature genuine venerable blues yeah. artists yeah. Uh, from yeah. from the states. Well, thank you, Pete. It's been fascinating to have a look around the museum, and, and uh, you've got obviously a wealth of knowledge that um, people <laughs> can avail themselves of. You, yeah, you hear most yeah. days to put some sort of guide people on Friday, Saturday, Sundays. Yeah, usually. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Pete. Well, you know, as I said, everybody, come down to the to the museum if you're in the area. It's it's well worth. Uh, I mean, you need a couple of hours to have a look, a good look around everything. And so Twickenham and this area's got so much musical heritage. And I'm really glad that we could take a little yeah. trip through it today. Well, thank you, Pete. This has you're been welcome. most fascinating. And uh, I said, um, come down, everybody. It's well worth it. All right. Well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that little trip through the Eel Pie Island Museum. And I'd like to say thank you, Michelle. Oh no! Thanks, thanks for coming down. Yeah, of course, Pete. It's yeah. fascinating. Thanks thank for you. your for your help today, and yeah. and, and Mr. Buddy Ascot. Thank Pleasure. you very much. Thank you. It was amusing uh, interjections. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget um, to check out the corresponding feature on retromanblog.com where we'll put some pictures of the museum and all the links to where you can. Um, or you know you can book I suppose you can book in advance to come down can you or can you, you just turn up to, you can just turn up yeah, yeah. unless you bring in a big group of people yeah, yeah. yeah. if you come in more bands 10 or more we like to have yeah. a little bit of notice but yeah generally yeah. just turn up it's fine yeah. and don't forget on the uh, retromanblog.com you've got my colleague um, Paul Slattery who is, uh, used to go to the same school as The Others, who are another unsung local band, and there's some great photos of them at the Crawdaddy <coughs> Club recently and uh, lots of his great old photos as well and don't forget to check out the British Beat Explosion, Rock and Roll Island book, yeah, which is contributed yeah, by Michelle. We sell, we sell it in the museum. Yeah, and uh, Raving Upon Thames by Andrew Humphreys, which yes. is a great read. I'm halfway Absolutely. through it, and it inspired me to do a little trip to Richmond ah. on the weekend to check out all the great locations mm-hmm. there. So, uh, yeah. 
thanks for listening everybody I hope you enjoyed this and uh, thanks Pete, Michelle and Buddy thank you, thank Bye. you. Thank cheers you think you're gonna please her so you walk right up and tease her but she walks right on by you're scared to walk beside her cause you're playing with the spider who possesses the sky she got the greenbacks not on mine you gotta act tall think big if you wanna make a mark in her book gotta get a hip get a car fancy clothes on she throw you right off of her hook here's a news you I've but one is you back garden scene gotta make like a shot to be seen something bad on your mind take my tip get on out take my tip get on out you can't give all you Something bad If you put you right up on the bed With some uncles and mine Take my tip, get on out Take my tip, get on out You think you're gonna please her So you walk right up and tease her But she walks right on by You're scared to walk beside her Cause you're playing with the tiger Who possesses the sky she got the green bags, my